0: Right now, we're in uh, in Psalms, the cries of the heart. Uh, That includes the the cries of Jesus. And so let us uh, listen to this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because He has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that this ends on a positive note, the note of hope. And so I ask that You would be with us this morning, that those who right now feel no hope would find hope as uncovered in Your Word that they would be encouraged with your promises, that they would lay hold of them in Christ. And may you enlighten us by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these words, that though we don't understand the full context of them in the life of a person, that they would resonate with us in our circumstances and would direct us to greater faith in you, despite our affliction. And so we ask that you would do this marvelous work in us because of Christ, Christ who has come, Christ who has died, Christ who has risen and will come again. Amen. This year was a breeze trip back home from vacation. 2 years ago we had the polar vortex going on in Chicago and uh we had the early flight out of New York and I was wondering if we were going to be amongst the million of people not the million but the thousands of people stuck in Chicago we survived the polar vortex it was okay there were no delays for us for the polar vortex well last year we ro- we left a little later in the day and in Chicago see I don't understand this in the summertime, we know we avoid Chicago. We don't go through Chicago. But, but for some reason, they want to put us through Chicago in winter. I don't understand. So last year, it was a snowstorm. And we had uh, a later flight. We didn't leave first thing in the morning. It was later in the day. And we, we already knew we were going to get in late. I think we were supposed to get in at like 11 or something like that. And so we get to Chicago safely. And we board, I think, at the proper time, if I remember correctly. And then... We sat. We had pulled back from the the gate, and we sat on the tarmac. And uh, okay, now I have a Fitbit. And I know what time it is. I just do that thing in my wrist. Oh, look, it's eleven twelve. Okay. I didn't have this last year. I, of course. Being a relatively obedient person, turned off my cell phone like I was supposed to. And so as we sat on the tarmac, I had no idea how much time had passed. I had no idea how many planes were in the queue ahead of us. All I can do is occasionally look out the window and go, oh, look, it's the snowplows again. How exciting. As they clear the runway, and oh, look, finally a plane has taken off. This is Good. We didn't know how long we were going to be there. And that begins to weigh upon the soul. I will not name the name of this individual member of the family, but they were crying out to us, we're never going to get home. (laughs) And I understand that sentiment because I didn't want to get stuck in Chicago. It's okay if it's just me, but I don't want to be stuck with a wife and four children in Chicago and have to deal with... You know, we in the airport? Do we have a hotel room? Oh no, they're probably all booked. All of that monstrosity of a mess. Affliction. Sinclair note, Ferguson notes that we are overwhelmed by pain that seems to have no horizon. When we can't see the end of it, it begins to be even more painful. Then, if we do know, okay, I got two more hours of this, then it's all good. Whether it's the pain of affliction with regard to a mystery illness that no one can seem to diagnose, whether it's a back that the doctor says six to 12 months maybe, if all goes well, the affliction of poverty. That you don't know if you'll ever get out of the affliction of addiction how long it weighs upon the soul and that's why this is an appropriate psalm for many people because they deal with the unknown in terms of time and their pain combined the big idea is that God fills our fearful hearts with rejoicing through prayer and I think you might, I don't know if I changed that one. I can't remember this morning. It's the first point I certainly changed. That is, affliction finds our hearts filled with fear. And I changed it initially. It was, affliction fills our hearts with fear. But then I remembered, it's not the affliction that's the problem. The fear is already there. The affliction just reveals it. We'll get to that just a little bit. But the first, the psalm is made up of three stanzas, and there's movement along this psalm. And the first part of this psalm is really just dealing with the pain, the uncertainty. And the drumbeat of this first stanza four times, boom, 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 is how long? This affliction is weighing heavily upon the psalmist, most likely David. The details of his affliction are missing. Sometimes David spells them out, sometimes he doesn't. Here, he doesn't really. We can hazard some guesses. It might have been when Absalom had rebelled and David was forced out of the city of, of his, uh of Jerusalem. It may have been when he was running away from Saul. It could have been any of the times when calamity had happened to the nation. We don't know. And that's good, actually, because then we can begin to identify with that experience of how long, O Lord, it's not tied to his particular circumstances, but, it, but the psalmist opens it up for all of us who suffer in a way where we don't know when the end point is. We can all use this psalm to guide us in the midst of our distress. But what I want us to also see is that the problem isn't the problem. Meaning, the circumstances, the difficult circumstances, were not the real problem. The real problem was, where is God? That's what the psalmist is lamenting about. God's lack of a response. How long do I have to wait? How long will you hide How long must I take counsel? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? How long? The problem is God's lack of response. But what's important for us to note as we look at this initially is He doesn't run from God. Even though he is lamenting in this first stanza, he's still running toward God. Okay, This is, in a sense, an extended prayer, a song that's a prayer where he pours out his heart to God instead of running away and neglecting God because he feels neglected. Will you first off forget me forever? David feels forgotten and ignored by God, the God whom in Psalm 23 he would say, The Lord is my shepherd. And so, in a sense, he's saying, My shepherd has wandered off. (laughs) Where is he? I feel vulnerable. I feel afraid. I feel insecure. I feel danger pressing in on every side. Where is my God? And as, a, as afflictions linger, we too can begin to feel forgotten. We can feel neglected. And the fear that's already in our hearts begins to be revealed. It's like when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste. What do you get? Toothpaste. Right? When God squeezes our heart in the midst of affliction, what comes out is only what's already in there. And so the fear that comes out, it's not produced by the affliction, it's simply revealed by the affliction. And so, you know, this week as I wanted to take my son to go see the new star wars movie and had to go through the process of fixing our oven and obstacle upon obstacle began to pile up and it was great then i you know and then realized okay i now have the the, the, dis- the disappearing wire i was able to get the wire and push it back into the oven and i attached the wires to the brand new heating element and then i looked and said oh joy the holes are in the wrong place we have the wrong part. And so my frustration that begins to be exposed, not just by that, but the fact that the movie starts at 2.30. It's now 1 o'clock. Okay, that's after 1 o'clock. I have to go to the parts store down by you know Oracle and Prince and get back and install this thing. And every time I'm driving, I'm getting a red light. How come I'm only getting red lights? Okay, all of the stuff that came out of me, it was already there. The affliction merely reveals how unsanctified I am, how much farther I still have to go. I can't blame the affliction for revealing the fear and arrogance of my heart. John Calvin notes, that when we are for a long time weighed down by calamities and when we do not perceive any sign of divine aid, this thought unavoidably forces itself upon us that God has forgotten us. And that is the greatest fear we can have, that God has forgotten us. He continues to cry out, How long will you hide your face from Me? I cannot help but think, and I'm sure that David was thinking of the Aaronic blessing from number six. This is the exact opposite. Instead of God turning his face towards David, God has turned his face away from David. He's, David feels like he's unaccepted in the sight of God. He is not experiencing the, the blessing of God, but instead the curse of God. This is how he feels. Not necessarily true, but he's being honest with God about how he feels. Not only in the midst do we feel in the midst of affliction that we are ignored, but sometimes we can begin to feel that God is our enemy, that He is out to get us. And now you may not admit that in polite company, but often we feel that in our hearts. One of the things I was able to do while Amy and the kids were away is go see movies. And so one of the movies I went to see was in the heart of the sea. And there in the midst of this movie, uh, there was this great little theological moment that took place. You see, uh, they had been, this was a whaling ship. And uh, supposedly this is the, the inspiration for Herman Melville's story, Moby Dick. And so uh, this crew had gone. There were, there were no whales that they encountered. And they heard that there was there were lots of whales um, to this specific place in the Pacific Ocean. And so they they were warned that there was this one whale that was very dangerous. And they oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so they go and they begin to hunt the whales when they finally find them in this place. And indeed, there was a great white whale that was very dangerous. They had never before heard of a whale sinking a ship and their their ship got sunk by the great white whale. And so those who survived on the lifeboats, well, actually the whaling boats, um, three boats, 30 days approximately, floating out at sea, they come upon a desert island, and they, they land there for a time, and that's when the first mate Owen Chase discovers uh, this cave and sees the skeletons of the people who were stranded there before them and decides, we really don't want to stay here. (laughs) No one's going to come to this place. But there's this moment between him and the captain that they they don't get along the whole time of this movie, but there's this one moment where um, he says to the captain, what have we done? that God is so angry with us. Arrogance? Greed? Now, God had not been mentioned in the entirety of this movie, and suddenly, in the midst of affliction, he goes to God and he says, what have we done to offend God? And that is where our hearts often go when we experience affliction. The psalmist wonders how long he must take counsel in his own soul precisely because God is not there to counsel him. As Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, he was listening to himself instead of talking to himself. His fears, his doubt, his unbelief were speaking those words, God has forgotten you. God has turned away from you. God is cursing you. He was listening to this. This was the counsel of his soul. He says that he is overwhelmed with sorrow. How long? How long? And to make it worse, his enemies are rejoicing. Now this does not mean that his enemies were the problem, but they've heard about the affliction that he is experiencing, and they're rejoicing, they're glad, they're happy. The root for this word has the idea of to encircle someone or something, almost like a dance. And it's like they're dancing with glee around him. He can almost feel their presence dancing and rejoicing over the fact that he is shaken, that he is in a precarious position, that he's in danger. when affliction reveals your fear-filled heart, what we need to do is remind ourselves of something. And one of the things that we must remind ourselves of is that Jesus suffered like this. He knew what it was like to say how long. And he experienced it, and he also experienced it for us as well as like us. Jesus wondered how long, how long would He be forsaken on the cross? How long would the Father hide His face from His only begotten Son? How long? Not only that, but Jesus wondered, as we see in this in Matthew 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? How long? Jesus wondered Himself. And so Jesus understands this cry of the heart we see here in Psalm 13. Jesus lived this cry of the heart we find here, and therefore He is able also, I believe, to offer us comfort when we experience that cry of the heart. And so affliction uh, fills our heart with the fear that we've been forgotten, with the fear that God is against us. Secondly, We're grateful that the psalm is not just the first stanza. The second stanza reminds us that faith looks to God as its only hope. You see, that first stanza is dark, it's brooding, it's filled with all of the pain. But he didn't hide that pain from God. He brought that pain into the presence of God. But he doesn't stop with his pain, and neither should we. And we don't stop precisely because we have Jesus, okay? Consider. Probably not the best translation of that word. Especially when you consider the the context. The root of this word has to do with what one does with the eyes. And so... The consider is tied to the fact of, look. Look at me. See my condition. He's asking God to see his condition and consider it. But to look. But he says that God is still his God. He still owns the Lord as his God. Look at me. Don't hide your face from me. And this idea of looking and considering is paired with, answer me. He wants to be heard. He has called upon God even now, and he wants an answer from God. The answer that he wants is not, oh, really, how much longer? (laughs) Okay. The answer he wants is deliverance. He's not concerned about the time frame as if, Well, if you just tell me how many more months it will be, God, I'll just stop bothering you. He is, in a sense, like the persistent widow who keeps praying to the unjust judge. Help me. Look and see the mess I'm in. Consider it and answer me by delivering me. That's really what he wants. Light up my eyes. He wants the fulfillment of that ironic blessing. Shine on me. It's part of that blessing from number six. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's what He wants. He wants God's face turned toward Him to accept, accept, uh, accept Him that he too would shine from the glory of God's countenance and that he would experience the graciousness of God in the midst of his affliction. We see that all of these words are words of entreaty. His only hope is God. There's no one else he's looking to. Precisely because there's no one else who can help because he recognizes his problem is God, not simply his circumstances. We see the danger that he raises. Essentially the idea of if you don't answer, this is what's going to happen to me. And so he borrows that uh, time-honored tradition that we heard about in Exodus 32 after the incident with the golden calf where God says, well, I'll just destroy these people and make you, Moses, into a great nation where he tests Moses' heart because, you know, there were times when Moses wanted to be done with them too, okay? (laughs) And Moses does two things, one of which was to remind God of the promises he had made to Abraham, that he would fulfill them. Another was, what would happen if they all died? And so here we see the danger. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's afraid. Not just that the affliction will continue, but the affliction will end in his death. That it will kill him. Some commentators try to soften this language. They try to say that this is an expression that refers to depression. A walking sort of death. Many of us fear depression, too. Some of us have walked through those dark, dangerous places of depression. Some of us know what it's like. You feel like you are in the valley of the shadow of death where there is no hope. And this is what he's saying. I may die, or I may just be in the darkness forever. He hears, so to speak, the rejoicing of his enemies, rejoicing because he is shaken and he brings that up to God. Just as Moses did. What will the Egyptians say if you destroy Israel here in the wilderness? They will question your character that you had evil intent to bring these people out so you could kill them. And so he's saying something along those lines. That they will think bad thoughts of you, God. That you don't take care of your people. He hears the rejoicing of his enemies. And he points us to Jesus in this regard as well. Because Jesus was surrounded by his enemies. He heard the mocking cries. Oh, you could save others. Save yourself. He heard them gloat over what they perceived to be His destruction in His affliction upon the cross. Our enemies think that our affliction means that God is against us and they encircle to rejoice. Rejoice. There's someone I love right now. Well, not that I love them right now. but Someone I love who right now is in a very dark place because his fears and anxieties are overwhelming him. And there's someone who doesn't believe that's in his life. They're not gloating. They're not gloating. But what they say to him is, where now is that God? you talk about. How we respond to affliction matters. I'm not saying be dishonest, precisely because the psalmist is completely honest. But he doesn't stop with the bad stuff. He continues to cry out to God as his only hope. And so faith doesn't give affliction the final word, but it looks to God as our only hope, which brings us to the third and final stanza. Those who bank on His love will rejoice. You see, in the midst of this fear, the third stanza is about trust, and it's about a future expected outcome. Now keep that in mind. It's future. He has not yet experienced it. But he knows it's coming. That's the important thing. He talks about what he has already done. I have trusted in your steadfast love. He has banked Everything on God. He's all in, all the chips are in the table because he believes in the steadfast love of God, which is greater in his mind than the afflictions he's experiencing. That though it seems that God is far away and God is against him, that ultimately God will be for him because of the promises he has made. This idea of steadfast love is connected to that idea of covenant. That God will fulfill his covenant promises. And so, as he thinks about his circumstances, he knows it stinks right now. But that doesn't mean God will fail to fulfill these promises that he's given me. He's probably thinking things like we find in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This reality that the circumstances that come into our lives are intended by the evil one, are intended by other people, or whatever, for evil, but God has the final say. And that God is able to bring good out of these things, that God didn't just permit these things to happen God ordained these things to happen but that his intention in ordaining them is far different and results in salvation deliverance the under, the, the growing grasp and understanding of the grace of God we see that revealed by Paul in Romans 8 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, your circumstances don't have the final say. How you think about your circumstances doesn't have the final say. But God works for good if you love Him because He has first loved you where Paul would be able to say in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And in between point A and point B, there will be many trials and tribulations and afflictions, and it may feel like you're going to die, but God is still faithful to himself, to his promises, to his people. Jesus, as we saw in John 17, knew that the Father would keep his promise and prayed that the Father would keep his promises. And we see in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that indeed the Father keeps all of his promises in Christ Jesus. All those Old Testament promises are yes in Christ, fulfilled in Jesus, and we receive them if we're a part of Jesus, united by faith. And so these expected outcomes are all in the future tense. He does not have them, but he believes that he will. Not because he deserves it, but because of who God is. And so he lists out a couple. My heart is will rejoice in your salvation. Now, there's two contrasts that take place in this. And the first contrast is that between the enemies. You see, the enemies are rejoicing at his destruction, but his heart is going to rejoice at God's salvation. He will rejoice last and continue to rejoice. Okay? Okay. But there's also the contrast of his own heart. It was filled with sorrow, and then God's going to fill it with rejoicing. His mourning will be turned into dancing, as the psalm says somewhere else. He says, I will sing to the Lord. He's not just going to sing. He's going to sing to the Lord. These are songs of joy because God has visited him. God has turned his face toward him. God has shined upon him. God has delivered him. And so he's going to re- respond by singing with joy in God's deliverance. And he expresses this another way because, here's the, here's the reason why he's singing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. There is abundant recompense there is abundant restoration. There is abundant goodness, which is going to be poured out upon David, which is poured out upon all his people who lay their trust fully in him. Abundant. This doesn't mean David is living his best life now. (laughs) But David has an expectation of a best life with God for eternity that God, because, as Paul says, he is rich in mercy, because, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 and 2, he he is rich in grace, David expects that God will visit and deal bountifully with him. And so can we. As many of you might know, one of my favorite verses is Lamentations 3, 23. In the context of the destruction of Jerusalem and everything near and dear to Jeremiah's heart, he's, he's laying out his fears and his tears and everything else, and he goes, His mercies are new every morning, great Is his faithfulness. And so, in the midst of the horrible destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah had hope because of the faithfulness of God, of the character of God. And that is what David banked on, and that is what we are to bank on. Not our own goodness, not our own righteousness but His goodness and His mercy towards sinners such as us. Well, that night a year ago, we made it home. We made it home that night, even though it was much later than we wanted it to be, by a couple of hours. The fears of our hearts were not realized whether it was we would never get home or whether we would be stuck in chicago for the night and try to get on standby as a family of 6 how's that going to happen right okay in fact the fears of our hearts usually are not realized why do we give them so much power ah oh, we do Affliction can move us away from God when we give in to those fears, when we allow them to write the script for our future. But faith fights the fear. And faith fights the fear primarily with prayer and the promises of God. We need to own our fears in the presence of God. In prayer. But we also need to ask of Him to work in our lives, to deliver us in, a, in the, whatever way He deems right and wise, not just the way we think it should happen. Don't just listen to yourself, talk to yourself so that you remember that He is a promise keeping God. And speak to yourself so that you're able to cling to those promises. To stir up hope in God through Christ, who suffered like you do, who suffered for you, so that God would indeed turn his face towards you and be gracious to you and give you peace. Wait for it. No matter how long. Let's pray. Father, some of the people in this room have been waiting. They can really identify with a lot of the fears that David expresses. And their hearts break. Help us to be compassionate, comforting, as well as encouraging to them So they, like Moses with his faltering arms, we come and raise them up. Because they're weary. And we love our brothers and sisters. Father, for those of us who are in the midst of it, we ask that you would grant grace to keep fighting. That you indeed would turn the eyes of hearts towards Jesus to consider Him who for the joy that was before Him thought little of the shame of the cross. That they might find strength coming from Jesus to them. Father, help us in the midst of our afflictions. Help us not to play games, not to play pretend, but to be honest with you and to be honest with one another. Father, I thank you that, um, that Mike, Michael Mock talked about burden-bearing brothers, and our brothers can't bear them if we don't share them. To so help us to be honest with each other. And help us to help one another as we have ability. Help us to love each other well this year. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.